evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes and, and desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So, what sort of influence do we see happening here? Who's influencing who, good or bad, those sorts of things. Okay, so different appeals, different sort of characters that are having this influence. Good or bad influence? Yeah, bad influence. All right, uh, let's go, let me read for you 1 Kings 11, verse 3. He, Solomon, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. So who's influencing whom here? Okay, yeah. So all of these marriages that Solomon has made for strategic and political reasons, uh, the net result is their idolatry led Solomon into idolatry. Good or bad influence? Bad, right. Um, when we come to the book of Proverbs, there's a lot on the subject of influence. So for example, Proverbs 13, verse 20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the command, companion of fools will suffer harm. So good or bad influence? Both, depending on who you're around. Uh, we have to recognize that it's not as simplistic as, if you have good friends, you'll turn out all right. Because sometimes people have looked at it the opposite way. There's a number of uh, older folks that I talked to who had maybe a grandchild who was not following God, and they'll say, oh, but, but they went to a Christian school, and they were around all these good kids, and what happened? It's not as simple as just you're around the right people and everything just magically falls into place. But it is also true that if you surround yourself with the wrong kinds of people, they're going to draw you away from God. Now there's challenges with that because complete isolation is not good either. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, particularly for people who are trying to share the gospel with other people. You can't share the gospel with people that you never have any contact with. The difficulty is not absorbing their lifestyle at the same time you spend time with them as to have an opportunity to, to share uh, truth with them. So many more passages we could look at in Proverbs. We'll keep moving for sake of time. Basically, it comes down to people exert influence on each other. It can be good or bad influence. So now we come to, let's turn to Deuteronomy 6. That's a really important passage in connection with this. Understandably given to the Israelites, but I think has even important principles today. Uh, would someone like to read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 for us? Anyone willing to do that? Ben, thank you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So, 
in connection with this passage, why does God want us to model him to one another? There's a very specific context here, primarily parents to children, but also some implications of the Israelites to one another. Why does God want us to model him to one another? Be a testimony. Yeah, be a testimony. To teach. To teach. Uh, if we don't have that regular input from other people reminding us of who God is and what he wants us to do, it's much easier for us to stray away from pleasing God. And so in Deuteronomy 6, there's this reminder that they're supposed to be meditating on who God is to teach them to their family, to um, have this interaction in public, and collectively that is going to produce a kind of spiritual maturity among the Israelites. Um, if we turn to the New Testament... Um, Let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians, because there's a bunch of them in 1 Corinthians. We'll start in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Paul says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Okay? Good, bad, otherwise, why does Paul want them to imitate him? Okay. And in what ways does Paul want them to imitate him? Because sometimes we just think, well, imitate by like learning the knowledge. But what other ways does Paul want them to imitate his life? Yeah, so like the manner of life. So Paul, for example, in Thessalonians, he appeals to the Thessalonians. He says, you know how we behaved among you? Like a father... Uh, sort of spurring you on to do better, to, to achieve what God wants for you. Like a mother tenderly caring for you in your time of need. That was this manner of ministry. So it's more than just learn the facts I'm telling you. It's imitate the way that I am living those things out before you. Uh, this is challenging because sometimes we will encounter people who teach us things that are true and then perhaps later in life turn away from God. Does that mean that the things that they said were false? No, it just, sometimes it's hard to separate the message from the person who's given it. On the other hand, sometimes you have people who lived in a way that seemed relatively godly, but they were perhaps imperfect in their theology. Uh, can we learn from both types of people? Yes. But the ideal is the third, where there is both good theology and a good manner of life, and that's why, what Paul was trying to model for them. Any quick thoughts on that before we move on? Paul, yeah, go ahead. I was just thinking, I think one of the main things that characterized Paul specifically was his absolute, he was completely sold out to live for God. Yeah. He wasn't concerned with anything in this world. I mean, I mean if anything, that's what we need yeah. to emulate. Sure. Yeah. Um, when we come to the next chapter, we recognize that it's more than just a one-on-one -on -one thing like Paul with one specific believer, but there's a collective influence that happens in the context of the church. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5-6, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So in the context of church discipline and dealing with sin in the church, if 
there are these circumstances in the church in which we can't be following each other's example and we are instead being led astray into sin, there's, there's real danger for the whole congregation. So there's positive influences of someone like Paul, and then there's these dangerous um, negative influences of, of someone like this man who is living in immorality, and the, there's big danger for the church in those things. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says... Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he returns to that theme there. And then the one that we're probably really familiar with, 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I think we tend to forget that the context of that statement is not just some random like words to live by kind of a thing. But bad company corrupts good morals is set in the context of the hope of the resurrection and being prepared for the day of Christ's return. So it's not just have good friends so you don't mess up your life and disappoint your parents. It is consider who is helping you to prepare for the day when Jesus comes back and the moment of your resurrection. And so I think that's important to remember that context as we think through these things. So people are influenced by other people. God wants us to model him to one another. We consider the dangers of bad influence. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 8.11, where Paul says, Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. So going back to our discussion of conscience that we did several years ago, if we are most focused on what pleases us instead of how to minister God's truth to one another, then there is a real danger that we're going to lead someone away from God to violate their conscience and to then um, be displeasing to God. And so it's not always just uh, I'm sinning and I drag someone else into sinning with me. Sometimes it's lack of awareness of uh, patience with God's working in someone's life that, that even unconscious issues that we have to be careful and consider the influence that we can have. So he says, he makes this statement, a person's actions can injure other people's bodies as well as undermine their faith. Um, and, and that's drawn from several passages, not just this one in 1 Corinthians 8.11. Would you agree that a person's actions can lead to injury of both bodies and faith and like the whole person? What would be some examples of that, maybe? How could my actions lead to harm to someone else, particularly in the context of the church? Yeah. I guess if, as a parent, you model uh, a great inconsistency, so, you know, if you're putting on your, your, your good hat when you come on Sunday, but then as soon as you get home, you're a jerk, you're, you know, lazy, you're abusive, you know, whatever. You can create great damage to all those who see it mentally, physically, and spiritually. Okay, yeah, I think that's a good example. Any others come to mind? How? Yes, Rita. In my past, uh, I was going to church since my children were very small. I hadn't accepted the Lord in my heart. I thought I accepted the Lord, but it was in my head, not my heart. And I was inconsistent. Mm. And I think 
the fact that my children, my oldest one especially, would say, Mom, I don't think that's right. You know, because I was young. I was in my 20s. And sure. Early 20s. And it, it was like, I'm modeling the wrong thing for my children, you know, and I think it convicted me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was here for every service. The doors were open. Sure. And the Lord worked mm-hmm. in me. Mm-hmm. And it worked in my children. But their influences around them mm-hmm. have drawn them away. Yeah. And it, it's crazy how easily that happens. And, and you don't expect that. Sure. You know, you think you're showing them all the right things. Mm. And that's in the end going to win. Yeah. The influence is there, always, especially now in this world. Sure. Um, any others on that one? One of the next points that he brings up is this idea of if there is uh, loneliness or um, lack of input from other people. Sometimes we have this idea of, well, if it's such hassle to model the right things to people and to not be influenced badly by other people, maybe the solution is just avoid people because it's not worth the trouble. What are some potential dangers of living your life alone by choice? There, there are circumstances in which people live their lives alone due to things beyond their control. Uh, a spouse dies um, kids move away, all those sorts of things. But I'm just saying, if you choose to isolate yourself from other people, particularly in the context of the church, what potential dangers do you face? Yeah, Rob? Well, <clears throat> it seems that Satan has a louder voice for, for many people because they don't have anyone else to bounce things off of or help them. Okay. Yeah, Bob? I figured what I was going to say. <laughs> I think, well, oh, I know what I was going to say. You can't do what Scripture tells you to do. Sure. I mean, even if you sat in a room with your Bible, if you don't interact with people, you can't ultimately fulfill the commands. Sure. Okay. So, quick application with regard to those of you who aren't married yet. Um, Obviously, there's a variety of circumstances in life. I'm not saying it's sinful to be unmarried, so don't mishear me. There is, in some church circles, sort of this attitude of, well, uh, almost like there's a holiness in being single. I'm going to be care- I'm gonna try carefully here. Um, there is a gift of singleness. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe. I think that there are a lot less people who have that gift than we might think. And so if the reason that someone chooses not to be married is for selfish reasons, I have these really unrealistic expectations. I think that this person is going to be more godly than I am, and I forget that I'm a sinner, and that person's going to be a sinner, and we're both going to be sinners together, and God's going to work in us both. You know, if, if we forget all those sorts of things, um, if we fail to take steps and opportunities to meet different people, so uh, just practical reality in the context of our church. Um, you might or might not meet your spouse in the context of this church. But we have a lot of sister churches in the area that 
you could have opportunity to participate in, you know, and Evan can probably attest to this, there are groups where people from different churches in the area will get together, you know, singles and college age and whatever. So take advantage of those opportunities so that you can meet people. Don't, don't just say, well, I never met somebody in my church, so God must not want me to get married. Or, um, you know, I didn't meet someone the first time that I participated in some activity, so uh, God must not want me to get married. Um, don't get married for the sake of getting married, but don't avoid marriage simply due to lack of effort, because the, God does a work of sanctification through marriage and through having kids that he can certainly do in other ways, but there is a unique, um, how do I put it? There's a unique process of being shown your selfishness when you are living around other people day in and day out and there are conflicts with what they want and what you want and all of those sorts of things. That if you don't have that, God can certainly work in you and change you, but it takes either more effort or sometimes longer or like a unique set of friendships to accomplish. Bob? Do you think it's fair to say that biblical singleness as a choice is primarily, maybe even solely, so that you can serve God with your whole life? Uh, yeah, so if, if you say, well, I want to be single because I can do what I want when I want, not have to worry about anybody else, have more money, go on more trips, all those sorts of things, and that's your primary and only motivation, I think that's an unbiblical attitude. Paul said, for people who are single, one of the advantages is they don't have all of the distractions and, and responsibilities of providing for a family in the same way. So... If you are going to say, I think God wants me to do missions, but how am I going to... Uh, it just it creates a whole additional set of questions. If I have kids, am I going to put them in the public school or in the mission field? Or am I, you know, if we face persecution, am I going to send them home? Like, if it's just Paul by himself, he's like, I'm good, I'm going to jail, no worries. They can beat me, they can kill me, I'm fine. If Paul had a family, think about how that affects the dynamics of his ministry opportunities. And it's not sinful for someone to have a family and to do missions. It just is more complicated. And so Paul says there's this, there's this simplicity about a single life that, yes, you can be dedicated to God in, in unique ways. Evan? I, I've told the James this before, and I think if I'm wrong, but I thought of, I mean, at one point, we all have the gift of singleness. Right. <laughs> Where it, maybe you do go on to get married, but you are single now. And yeah. I think that puts in perspective, okay, what are you doing now to serve the Lord? Um, because, yeah, he's blessed you by being single right now, so you can serve him yeah. all your heart. Yeah, I mean, if you've got all that free time, extra, extra, extra money or whatever else, you have some opportunities in your late teens, early 20s that you may not down the road. We're going to talk about the idea of the church providing an alternate set of... Um, like the church being a family in place of a more traditional biological family. We'll get to that in a moment. So I, again, I, my comments on singleness here are not to say, well, if you don't have a family, God has nothing for you to do. I'm just saying, for those of you who haven't gotten to that point, don't skip having a family for selfish reasons. That's the main point I'm trying to make. Um, so dangers of loneliness, lack of input from other people. Think about what people think of in terms of like eccentricities or quirks or those sorts of things. 
that process of being around other people sort of knocks the edges off of us. And when we don't have that regular input, we have to seek out those iron sharpening iron friendship opportunities. They don't happen naturally just in the course of life. Kind of like perhaps a parallel in a completely different realm would be because my work is primarily to minister to all of you, to prepare for Sundays, to try to do discipleship things, all those sorts of things, it would be very easy for me to teach my class at the Christian school, come sit in my office, go spend time with my family, and never talk to somebody who doesn't know God. And so I can deliberately seek out those opportunities, but it's a little bit more work. Someone who's single can seek out those opportunities to be cultivated and, and shaped and changed by the influence of other godly people, but you have to work at it a little bit more. So, uh, Moving on to the top of the... Well, kind of the bottom of this page, top of the next uh, next question. I was hiding behind my Bible here. Why do we need to evaluate the influences of others on our lives? There's a couple possible answers to this, but why is this something we even need to think about? Yeah, right. Influences can be subtle and not always super obvious. Yeah, they're happening whether we recognize it or not. So we need to be thinking about whether they're good or bad. Right? Any other thoughts on this one? Why do we need to evaluate influences of other people in our lives? Maybe let's talk about the categories in which people influence our lives. So he talks about, um, he calls them orbits of influence, you can, uh, or orbits of relationship. Uh, he lists um, family, church, workplace, social circles, economic strata, ethnic background, and countless other cultural expectations, these personal relationships exert influence to varying degrees. So here's an example. Um, what influences you is probably not going to be the thing for someone else, and what influences you at a particular point in life is probably going to be different from someone else. So here's an example. Um, a teenage boy is probably more influenced by the opinion of an NBA all-star on which shoes are the highest quality than by the researchers at Consumer Reports. His parents are influenced in exactly the opposite way. So, silly example, you're going to buy a brand new pair of basketball shoes. What do you care about? The opinion of others. The opinion of others. So, I was in a Christian school and I had to buy basketball shoes and I bought the basketball shoes, A, because it was required to be part of the team and B, because everyone else was wearing them and I didn't want to not have the shoes that everybody else had. I didn't really care about were they good quality, were they a good value, you know, I didn't care about any of that. It's just like, I'm on a team, I've got to be part of the team, I've got to fit in. And Looking back, they really weren't all that, all that cool of, of shoes, you know. And then, you know, it's more interesting, circling back around to that, last year when I was sitting with a high school or some of the, senior, uh, the, the seniors at the Christian school, some of them were very interested in, in shoes. I was like, why are you so interested in these shoes? They're like, these are amazing shoes. Well, how much are they? Well, they're like 300 bucks. So let's think through this. Why would you want to spend $300 on shoes? I'm not saying it's sinful. I think a lot of other ways to spend $300 before you buy a pair of shoes. Um, anyways, before we get too, too far off on it. Could be sinful. Could be sinful. Yeah. Um, here's another.
another example. A young professional may be more influenced by reading a biography of Steve Jobs than by his pastor's sermon from Job on Sunday. You're working to get your MBA, you want to see somebody who's successful in business, that seems more relevant to your life than some guy talking about suffering of a guy thousands of years ago that you hope never happens to you. Um, but I will tell you that if you are the young professional, listen to what Job has to say, just as a quick aside. So different categories that affect your life. Culture, family of origin, present family, vocation, social circles, and media. Quick description of what these are. Culture describes any group's shared expectations about the world. So culture could be um, like in the context of the church. You could have the culture of the church where we say phrases that we see in the Bible or that have just become part of Christian culture like ask Jesus in your heart, what would Jesus do, be born again. Some of them are biblical, some of them are not per se. That's one example of a culture. Uh, cultures tend to have jargon, they tend to have sets of beliefs, they tend to have identity markers, they tend to have, you know, those are just some... Are cultures good or bad? It's complicated. Yeah. So, yeah. So, let's take American culture. Is the idea that we should have freedom to worship God a good idea? Sure. Is the idea that we are self-sufficient and we don't need anybody else a good idea? Not, not necessarily. So you have aspects of culture that it's not as simple as like, my culture is good, your culture is bad. So then think about how the gospel exerts influence over culture. Someone who's an American gets saved. Their priorities have been making money, living the American dream. Now they're a Christian. Is there, which has to take priority, their culture or what the Bible says? The Bible says. And there are going to be things that line up. You go to another culture. Let's say, you know, I visited some missionaries down in Mexico. Their culture values interpersonal relationships in a much stronger way than I think we would find ourselves doing here. Um, but they have a different idea about time. So should the goal be to have the service start at 6 o'clock every Sunday night, and, and no matter what, we start the service, and, and that, is that an American idea or a biblical idea? Probably more an American idea. Now, should things be done decently and in order? Yes. Should we be, should we be admonishing the person who consistently shows up an hour late to the two-hour gathering that, hey, you have more opportunity to interact with these people if we all gather at the same time? Sure. Does that mean that it's sinful for them to, to, you know, my friend, I had a friend named Hector, and his wedding didn't start until like two hours after the scheduled time because they were just waiting for all the relatives to finish getting there. And that's just a thing. So, like the idea of like personalities, people, some people even be more outgoing, some people being less so, the goal is not that there's this one fixed goal that everybody is getting to, the goal is that we're being more conformed to what pleases God, in whatever that looks like in a particular culture. So yeah, culture, all right? Um, how many of you think culture is one of the big um, orbits of relationship that affects your life? Bob? So as you've been talking, I've been thinking, one of the, and we see this starting with even Abraham to a certain extent. Sure. 
Um, the ideals about that man and woman relationship and how that, what the expectations that are there mm. and what that drives both men and women to do. Sure. Obviously, David yeah. fell hard. And I think that that dynamic has caused more men to fall probably than any other in regards to the... Uh, not necessarily appeal, but the uh, allure of a woman, okay, one way or another, and in America in particular, it is sex is such a huge part of every aspect uh. from Disney to commercials, sure, and everything in between, and everything is so sexualized. It's it almost makes you think that it's normal. That it's accept and, and there's a level of exception and expectation, and even in my short life, I've seen men fall away because of the allure of a woman. Sure. And I've seen women fall away because of that deep desire to for that attention sure. that they're seeking. So, all that being said, I think after we're done with First Peter, we're going to go to Proverbs. Okay. All right. <laughs> So with regard to that, let's take an example that's coming up in, a, in like a week. So with Halloween, we could, there's, we're not going to take a ton of time on this, but we could have a difference of opinion on whether or not it's acceptable to do the activity, the social gathering part of the activity. There should be no difference of opinion on whether it's appropriate for it to be an opportunity to flaunt yourself in the way that you're describing. And our culture is like, you know, you know, little kids get candy, older kids, it's an excuse, to, uh, older kids and adults, an excuse to dress in inappropriate ways and get people's attention, right? And so that's a clear example of culture. And one solution is to say, avoid it entirely. Another is to say, we're not going to do this with this way. And that's a, a conscience issue that's a much bigger topic that we can't talk through at the moment. But at the very least, we should say, when the Bible says, something like flee youthful lust, we can't be participating in whatever event it is in a way that, that is disregarding what the Bible says. All right, keep moving for sake of time on categories. Family of origin. His point with this is the family that you grew up in shapes you in a lot of ways. So how many of you feel like the family that you grew up in had strong effects on, on influence you? Okay? Yeah. So his example is um, you know, someone who, let's say someone has a father who is abusive or, or you know, distant or whatever else, that's going to definitely shape you in many different ways. Um, then he talks about present family, and I think the reason he distinguishes the two is family of origin would be sometimes more ethnic or more like what happened in your past in connection with family. Present family is like the family you're a part of now. Your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your fiance, your girlfriend, your children. I mean, all those different things in your present family connections, those exert influence on you as well. Um, so just by way of example, um, let's say that, you know, two people are getting married and one, one person's experience is 
that they um, go on trips at spring break and the other person's experience is they don't go on trips at spring break. That's a potential point of contention because there's different family experiences and then the way that translations to your present experience is, well, what are we going to do as a family? And then, um, then those things in turn shape the next group of people so that they become convinced which side of the plate the fork goes on or how do you fold the napkin or, you know, little things, but also much more important things. How do we solve problems with other people? Do we actually go and talk to the person directly or do we sort of like talk amongst ourselves and then talk to the person or maybe just talk amongst ourselves and never deal with the issue? There's many different ways that families handle problems, for example. Uh, there's different ways that families handle money and all of these things exert ongoing influences. Uh, he talks about vocation. Your job affects you. Expectations about what success looks like. Uh, goals in terms of career advancement. Um, the specific lifestyle associated with the job. I was talking with um, a guy at the hospital on Friday and he was the dialysis nurse. And he was talking about before he was doing dialysis at the hospital that he had a job that was um, basically like traveling around the world. It sounded like a really interesting project. They were trying to do like dialysis but for the liver, like filter out toxins with a machine in place of when your liver wasn't working. Really cool idea. But he said that constant lifestyle led to a number of things including he wasn't very healthy because he was just, you know, he had an expense account and he's in all these exotic places and so it's like, try this great food, spend time with these people. He was gone all the time, so that ended up leading, I think, his wife that ended up getting divorced. Like, there's all these expectations in connection with your job that influence you as well. The category of social circles. What do your friends say you should do? What are their expectations? What do they encourage you to do? I mean, that's the one we tend to focus on, but it's one of many, but it is an important one, right? How do, how do your social circles affect you? Any examples of this? Social circles. Language? Yeah, okay. So, like, when you say language, can you... Uh, okay, yeah. And this happens even if you're not actively wanting it to happen. So... There was a summer where I did um, IT work and I traveled around different people's houses and there were a number of occasions where I encountered people who would swear about different things. If you hear that often enough, eventually it's going to come out in what you say, even if that's not actively your intent. And there's different ways to go about resolving that, but yeah, language is one of them. What else? There are other examples of social circles and their influence on us. I mean, peer pressure as a whole. Okay. How you dress, what you partake in, yeah. where you go. I mean, all of those things. If you're trying to impress people that are around you, you are more susceptible to make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise. Sure. And we tend to think, well, I'm just saying this by way of my own observation, my experience, etc. We tend to think, well, you know, people who have been homeschooled are less likely to succumb to peer pressure. And I think that that can often be true because you haven't had these constant expectations of people all through. However, one of the dangers, I think, is when you come out of being under your parents' influence and all those sorts of things, then if you have not had opportunities to resist the influence of other people, 
then you've got kind of a test. Am I going to just, you know, I want to be accepted, so I'm going to do what other people want, or am I going to continue to say I need to do what I'm going to do based on what pleases God and all those sorts of things. So I think there are some unique challenges and things to think through there um, with that. And, uh, yeah, and peer pressure we, is not something that stops when you get out of high school. We tend to think that, but it just takes on different forms. Our last one there is media. Does media influence us today? Yes, obviously. Sometimes it's just, uh, let me just give you an example of this. If you listen to the news regularly, you're going to come away with a pretty dismal perspective on the world. And the world is a dismal place, apart from the hope that God provides. But you will be led to despair if you only listen to the news because that's all they ever talk about is bad things. So what would be one solution to reducing that influence in your life? Consume less of it, right? Okay? All right. Wrapping up here quickly, I know we're basically at the end of our time. And this is a really important thought. In what way does the church provide an alternative set of influences and categories in contrast to culture, media, and family connections? I'm just going to give you some quick answers. We can talk more about them later. In terms of this idea that your family is only your biological family, the church provides a spiritual family that in some cases is even a deeper commitment and caring for one another than maybe your family that you grew up in. Uh, in terms of um, social circles, the church can provide opportunities to interact with people that are unique and deeper than just the, you know, we all like sports kind of connections that we make uh, with friends, you know, just from work or wherever else. Just a couple of quick examples of that. Um, in terms of media, all right, the church provides opportunities for you to listen to sermons and other Christian resources in a way that uh, sort of is a counterbalance to all of the negativity and the lies that we encounter in media out in the world. We could go on from there, but this we'll keep moving here. Three categories that he talks about. Loving others in the context of their influence on you, thinking, desires, and actions or commitments. In terms of thoughts, loving others means people will think regularly about the interests and concerns of those around them rather than dwelling on their own. They'll be open to thinking in categories should be not native to their own orbits of concern in order to enter into those of others, valuing their thoughts of perspectives as important to and possibly even corrective of one's own. So some biblical principles, humility, considering the needs of others, serving one another, lots more. I'd encourage you to think more about that question later. In terms of desires, a believer is free to have a genuine desire for the good of others. Christians may find themselves experiencing sadness at the misfortune of others, even those whose interests have nothing to do with their own. A believer is better prepared to respond to hostility without destructive emotion. Again, consider what biblical principles are in those statements and the effect that God has through his influence on the way that we relate to other people. In terms of commitments, faith purifies the intentions of the heart when interacting with others, undermining ulterior motives. It's no longer about what pleases me, what I can get, putting myself first but what pleases God when I'm talking to this person. I come to church not just to say, who can do stuff for me, but how can I fulfill the one another commands of Scripture in the context of my conversations and, and what I'm doing. Faith makes people willing to serve others 
instead of being loyal to their own interests. So a quick recap, we are influenced by the people around us. They can be good influences, they can be bad influences. The solution is not to abandon the influences and isolate ourselves, but to be aware of them, to evaluate whether they're biblical, to evaluate whether they're in their proper place. Be aware that we're influenced by things like culture and family and work and media, and shift to be most influenced by what pleases God and relationships in which other people are striving to please God and then all of us collectively have an influence that leads more toward Christ-likeness. Any quick questions as we wrap up? I know we're over our time.